Hello, and welcome to Independent Thinking, the weekly podcast from Chatham House. I'm Bronwyn Maddox, the director. This week, we're looking at the crisis in Myanmar. This week marks the two-year anniversary of the coup by the armed forces, who in February 2021 overthrew the democratically elected government. Since then, the country has descended into a brutal and complex civil war. We're going to be looking at the state of the country and its people and whether the country can hold together, can democracy ever be restored, and is the world ignoring a major humanitarian crisis in the making? We'll also be discussing the wider implications for democracy and human rights in Southeast Asia. What role are external players such as India, China, even Russia, what are they doing? We'll be looking at whether there can be any hope for international justice for the many victims of war crimes committed by the military junta. Joining me down the line are two journalists who've covered Myanmar extensively. Sebastian Strangio is an author and the Southeast Asia editor at The Diplomat. Welcome, Sebastian. Thanks for having me. Great to have you here. And joining us down the line as well from Bangkok is Ali Fowl, a freelance journalist with Al Jazeera and the BBC. Welcome, Ali. Hi, thanks for having me. Great to have you here as well. And here in the studio in London at Chatham House, my colleagues Ben Bland, the director of our Asia-Pacific program. Hello again, Ben. Hi, Bromo. And Rashmin Sagu, the director of our international law program. Welcome to the show, Rashmin. Many thanks. Good to be here. Very good to have you here. Let's start into Myanmar's descent into civil war and the state of the country now. Ali, you've reported extensively from the ground. Can you give us a sense of what the country was like before the coup? Yes. Just before this period, Myanmar had obviously been going through a decade of transition. The military had handed over power in 2011, following what was widely discredited as sham elections, because the major opposition party, the NLD, National League for Democracy, at which is Aung San Suu Kyi's party, didn't participate. However, despite how widely discredited the elections were, change did happen very quickly after that. There were huge leaps forward in rights and freedoms. Thousands of Political prisoners were released. Press freedom hugely improved. They lifted censorship. There were changes in economic freedoms. Infrastructure improved. There was a a lot of opening up of the country, which obviously helped with all of that. By any measure, things had been going steadily in, in a positive direction. Many exiles and dissidents who had been banned from the country for decades came back. Civil society was growing. Of course, it was flawed. There were many huge issues and not least of which is the Rohingya genocide, which happened during this period. And I suppose that also happened because after 2015, Aung San Suu Kyi's party, which had decided not to take part in the 2010 elections due to her and many other people being banned, they took part and won by a landslide. So people thought this would lead to even more change. But then the flaws in the transition really started to become apparent. And that is, it was during this period that we saw the Rohingya crisis. It was during this period that we felt the military's grip, which was already pretty tightly around the country, pull back because the military under the constitution had maintained control over major ministries and they were still very influential. But when their military-backed party was in power, I think they felt more comfortable. But after Aung San Suu Kyi's party, came into power, we saw them wielding their might a little bit more. And obviously part of that um, was demonstrated in the Rohingya crisis, which was this horrific exodus of hundreds of thousands of Rohingyas from the west part of the country into Bangladesh. And there were lots of other things that started to become problematic as well. Press freedom uh, was definitely backtracking. It was... Generally positive, but we, we're starting to see warning signs 
the NLD, of course, remained extremely popular, even though Aung San Suu Kyi had lost favor in the West and in the international eyes of the international community. They remained extremely popular inside the country. She remained extremely popular. And then they won the 2020 elections again with an even bigger landslide, which very few people seem to be expecting. And so that's when it all went wrong. That's when the military realized that they had lost control, that they didn't have the control that they thought they had. And some power-hungry people made some horrible decisions. And that when the coup unfolded, it famously did so live on Facebook. Sebastian, can you take us to where we are now, Ali, having taken us through that period just two years ago? In the two years since the coup, the country has settled into a generalized civil war. In the immediate aftermath of the coup, um, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people flooded into the streets to protest this return to military rule. I think that all of the freedoms that Ali mentioned that came about during the reform period changed people's perspectives on what they could reasonably expect. You had a generation of young people who grew up enjoying these freedoms, taking these relative freedoms for granted. And all of a sudden, they were wrenched back to the direct military dictatorship that their parents and grandparents had experienced. The Myanmar people almost universally are opposed to this. But the military responded to the protests that took place after the election with brutality. They shot many people in the street. They deployed the security forces. They quashed these peaceful protests very decisively. And so what happened then is that the opposition began to take up arms of its own. And we've got a situation now where there are dozens, scores, if not hundreds, of small civilian militias known as People's Defense Forces that have mushroomed up in opposition to military rule. And they are particularly strong in the countryside. Yes. Yeah. In a lot of areas of the country that even areas of central Myanmar that historically have been seen as bastions of support for the military establishment, ethnic Bama areas, the Bama are the majority ethnicity in Myanmar and dominate the armed forces. Even in these areas, we're seeing conflict erupt, places that have been relatively peaceful since independence, which is quite a remarkable thing. And of course, the coup has also inflamed a host of pre-existing conflicts in Myanmar between ethnic minority groups that are fighting for autonomy or independence from the state and the central state itself. All of these groups exist in loose coalition. They're all united by who they oppose, but it's still in flux as to exactly the relationship between them and how these ethnic armed organizations are going to interact with the National Unity Government, which is the political leadership of the anti-junta resistance. And how they're going to work together remains a bit unclear. Enormously unclear, as you eloquently describe. Ben, is the regime isolated internationally? How is it placed? It's pretty isolated for the moment, but it's a challenge particularly for Myanmar's neighbours to respond to because sitting in London, it's obviously a faraway problem, but for Thailand, for Malaysia, for Indonesia, also for countries like Japan and Korea and China that have sizable investments and corporate operations in Myanmar, it's a much more practical question. And what we've seen is a handful of governments have informally basically accepted the legitimacy of the military junta. So that would probably include in different forms, Russia, China, Belarus, Saudi Arabia. And they've done that in various ways through engaging with the military junta effectively as the legitimate government of Myanmar. The regional organization in Southeast Asia, ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, has tried to take a toughish line on Myanmar, given that it usually averts its gaze from internal conflicts. But ultimately, the body is divided. So the mainland Southeast Asian countries, for the most part, which are geographically closer, and are almost all authoritarian states, so that would be Thailand, Cambodia, Laos, and Vietnam, 
basically pushing for a softer line, more pushing towards recognition of the junta as the legitimate government. And pushing pushing where? Within ASEAN, within their own organization, which is probably one of the premium regional organizations in the whole of Asia, not just for Southeast Asia. But then you have the maritime countries, which tend to lean more democratic, Indonesia, the Philippines, Singapore, Malaysia, which want to try and have some measure of pressure on the junta. They want to try and exclude those military leaders from the big regional meetings that they have to try and keep the pressure on. But it's a difficult balance because of this principle of non-interference, which lies at the heart of all these governments in Southeast Asia. Rashmin, I wanted to bring you in there. We've seen the reports of mass killings in Myanmar, and the most recent reports suggest air attacks in civilian areas. Is there any hope for international accountability in this kind of situation? So in terms of international accountability for war crimes, there's two periods we're really looking at. There's the pre-coup period in which there's a number of cases I can talk about. And there's also the what's happened since the coup. In terms of the pre-coup period, there's a... This is the kind of thing that Ali was discussing. Exactly. In, in terms of the background that she so eloquently set out, the accountability is being pursued via three main routes. That's firstly a case before the International Court of Justice brought by the Gambia in 2019, which invokes the responsibility of Myanmar for committing and failing to prevent genocide under the Genocide Convention. Now, last year in July, the ICJ dismissed claims by Myanmar, its objections to this case proceeding. So it now has decided that it has got jurisdiction to hear the merits of the case. And just to be clear, this is against which government? Against Myanmar. Against the previous government? So it would be against the state. And so even though the nature of the government has changed completely, the legal process is to bring it against the state. It's a good point because under international law, the position is that international law recognises states, not governments. And that question comes down to who has effective control over the territory, which, of course, in a situation like Myanmar is complicated. And I interrupted you because you were going to tell us about more points, more cases. Yes, there's a couple more. There's a, and it can be confusing because there's different, these different avenues. But the, there's another investigation before the International Criminal Court, which is on the responsibility of individuals, particularly senior military, government and religious leaders for acts of deportation and persecution of the Rohingya people from Myanmar to Bangladesh. It's really important to note, however, that the ICC hasn't got jurisdiction over crimes committed in Myanmar itself, given Myanmar has never been a party to the, to the Rome Statute, which set up the, the ICC. But it's got jurisdiction in this case over crimes that were committed partly or completed in Bangladesh, because Bangladesh is a party to the Rome Statute. And then thirdly, there's, a, there's some domestic cases, which are mainly of a civil nature in various jurisdictions, including the US. And these seek reparations or financial compensation from Facebook, now Meta, for harm caused to the Rohingya refugees. And this is a really interesting question about corporate responsibility of big tech for involvement and their responsibility in respect of algorithms that push out harmful rhetoric. Against that, the question of free speech and protection of free speech. In terms of post-coup cases, there was a criminal complaint issued in Germany just over a week ago against the military for war crimes and genocide under the concept of universal jurisdiction. And what this does is gives the really important given what I mentioned that the ICC itself has got constraints on being able to hear cases because of its jurisdictional limitations. So the German case is definitely one to watch. Thank you for that. Ali, I wondered if you could just talk us through the humanitarian situation now within Myanmar and how these kind of things that Rashmin has been describing, how they play out on the ground. Do they seem completely abstract or is it a source of hope for people? 
there are many people that are still working very hard to bring international attention, international justice to a lot of these cases, and that's incredibly important. And there are many people in Bangladesh who are no longer in Myanmar, who are still suffering, living in refugee camps under terrible conditions, who really want those cases to be to be seen and they want the attention of the world on to, to be focused on this but in terms of like day-to-day inside Myanmar for ordinary people it's a, it's dire and they just don't have time to be thinking about the big politics you're talking about food crisis situation is it or an inflation crisis let's say because the cost of food has doubled or food prices have ridden, risen 100 percent this has obviously been sparked by several things the country wasn't doing particularly well anyway after covid And then obviously the conflict, which is spread really throughout the entire country, even in the major cities, you're seeing conflict, you're seeing all areas affected by it, really. And you're talking about 40% of people living in in poverty. I think UN OCHA, the humanitarian um, uh, arm of the UN, said 17.6 million people in Myanmar now currently need humanitarian assistance. And it's, I think, the worst... 17.6 million 17.6 17.6 million and that the population's 56 million so that's that's a very large number of people who are living in crisis and it's de- certainly the worst crisis humanitarian crisis in the region i think it's the only humanitarian crisis in east asia according to the un i think i, I saw that recently and you're reading stories of people eating rats eating street dogs people who have eaten nothing for days and even amongst friends of mine who are generally people from slightly more affluent or like middle-class backgrounds, people with some savings or who've been working with the international community, perhaps, they're also really struggling. A lot of them, they even if they do still have a job, their salaries haven't been increased at all. Many people have lost jobs during this civil disobedience movement. A lot of them who are working for government quit and then now cannot return to their jobs, even, even if they wanted to. And they're in a very desperate situation. This is a really desperate picture that you're painting. Sebastian, Is what, this is a call for immediate help. What's the prospect of that? doesn't seem very likely. When it comes to humanitarian aid, one of the problems that a lot of Western governments are now facing is that to get aid to certain parts of the country, you have to go through the military authorities. And this is fraught with ethical dilemma. Working through these authorities, in some senses, can be seen to legitimate them. And most of the Western governments that might be willing to offer this aid have come out very strongly against the coup and condemned it. Resistance is also asking for arms and more robust support to help them prevail in their struggle against the military. And this is something which is also fraught with problems from the perspective of the Western governments that are being asked. There's, I think, in the US and in Europe and in other Western countries, there's a lot of this a reluctance to begin pouring arms into Myanmar in the same way that they're doing in Ukraine, for instance. And I think that the disjuncture between the extent to which Ukraine has become a cause celeb over the past year to the fact that Myanmar has faded from the international headlines to some extent now is a subject of real concern and anger amongst a lot of the people that oppose the junta. And it is a very difficult situation. The fact that China borders Myanmar, shares a long border with it, raises the geopolitical stakes. The Chinese, they have always been in Myanmar, have been brutally pragmatic about who they support and how they advance their interests in the country. And I think the Chinese have made a calculation it took them a few months to really settle on this, but a few months after the coup, they I think they came to the conclusion that the military would probably prevail and that in order to advance strategic and economic interests in the country, they needed to work through the military administration and begin to rebuild relations with the military. And they've done that. That's a really fascinating. Yeah. So, ben, you were nodding a lot as Sebastian was 
talking. Is that, do you share that picture of it? And I also was going to ask you about Russia, where it is in all this. Yeah, well, I think that's correct. But it's not just China. India is engaging with the military as a neighbour that sees, in the end, maybe the same ultimate conclusion. I'm not saying that's what I think will happen, but I think that's probably where, where they think things are going and that they're generally more comfortable dealing with people who hold the guns and the formal kind of seals of state. So I think that's part of it. And it, it tells us about the world we live in, that there are no, there is no big camp of democracies versus autocracies. India's a democracy, but we know on Ukraine, it's taken a series of decisions because of certain domestic reasons. The same thing on Myanmar. So there's no kind of easy coalition of the willing to build here. And I think Russia has seen a bit of an opening. It's obviously been recognizing military as a legitimate government. It's been providing weapons. The extent to which Russia can backstop the junta, I think, limited. China is always the bigger partner and a neighbor. But the interesting question is that in the past, one of the reasons for this transition away from really very strong military rule was because there was a sense that Myanmar was becoming too isolated and too reliant on China. So these kind of geopolitical dynamics can work in different ways, but that's a kind of medium term game. But I think the junta, at some, in some sense, they don't want to be completely reliant on China. But if they have no other options and staying in power means aligning with China for now, they're probably going to be willing to do that. But in the long term, I think that's going to put a certain pressure on them. And Rashmin, the kind of moral ambiguities we were talking about that might deter the West from getting in, involved, how do you see that? It's an interesting one because international law works in many different ways in, as part of the multilateral system. There's so many different prongs to it. For example, the UN Security Council resolution of December last year was a significant development. Russia and China abstained. It denounced the military's human rights violations since the coup. Critics say it doesn't have teeth because there was no referral of the situation to the ICC and it didn't call for a global arms embargo. But the fact it passed at all is, is a good thing. And in other parts of the multilateral system, the Human Rights Council still got really important work to do in terms of reporting, there are sanctions that exist against Myanmar. Of course, there are calls for greater state coordination and targeted sanctions against the junta leadership and companies owned by them. So it's not the full answer, but it's an important tool in the policy toolkit. And then the vital role for civil society organisations to do the things that Ali was mentioning about drawing attention to the hum gross human rights violations. And together, this can all help ASEAN and others put pressure on the junta to end the human rights violations. And whilst it's hard to imagine right now, at some point in the future... If Myanmar wishes to break its isolationism and re-enter the world stage and be taken seriously, it has to take these issues seriously. So I guess from an international law perspective, the point is that it's not just about sending people to jail, but it's also about a signal to, by the international community about its condemnation of situations like this. Let's just broaden this out a bit. We've already taken in quite a few of these themes about how the region has been reacting to this. But Ben, I wondered if you could just dig in a bit more to how ASEAN might respond to this? So far, there's been a muddled response. There's been a desire to put a bit of pressure on Myanmar. And the head of the junta, Minung Lying, has been denied his seat at the key regional meetings. But all sorts of other junta officials are participating formally in these ongoing processes that every regional organization has. Indonesia is currently running ASEAN. The chairmanship rotates every year. And they've signaled that they would like to maybe push a bit harder, but there are limits because of this question of the principle of non-interference. And because of the division, as I said earlier, between the democracies and the more authoritarian states in Southeast Asia, the problem is, so long as you have Myanmar, a country that's in civil war, it's a failing state that's part of your organization, they can't move ahead on other important questions, whether that's economic integration, whether that's talking about the South China Sea, geopolitics, it's very hard 
for them to move ahead coherently while Myanmar is still in the room. But ultimately, I don't think other member states are going to find the consensus they need to suspend Myanmar, let alone to kick it out of ASEAN. And there's also a sense in the way the regional organization works that it is like a family. So even when there is a problem, even the most strident countries on... The problem within the family. Yeah, so Indonesia, Malaysia, Singapore, they want to keep Myanmar in the tent. And they would say to Western government officials who have pushed for a hard line, look, if we kick them out, they'll be even more in the sort of China camp. They'll be even more isolated. There'll be even fewer avenues to climb down, which I think feeds back into Rashmin's point that often sanctions are not useful when you put them on, but they're useful when you take them off as a bargaining chip. If and when at some future point there is some sort of peace process or some sort of negotiation with the junta where they would allow some more openness or democracy, that gives you some marginal leverage to negotiate with them. Sebastian, where do you see these politics going, particularly with what we've all been discussing, this looming humanitarian crisis? The difficulty in Myanmar right now is that neither side really is in a mood to compromise. Obviously, the resistance feel that any compromise with the military would simply be to return things to a situation in which the military retains a prominent role in Myanmar's politics. And the resistance has evolved from simply overturning the coup and returning to the status quo ante to a more radical and revolutionary agenda of extricating the military from Myanmar's politics and from its economic life on a permanent basis. So this has really hardened into a zero-sum struggle now. And the military obviously have shown no interest in negotiating, no interest in compromising. They've designated most of the opposition groups as terrorists and are treating them as such. And this is, no matter who is coming in from the outside, they have to face the fact that dealing with two sides that there's virtually no trust on either side. Not, the situation is not really amenable to a negotiated solution at the moment. You could say something similar about the Russia-Ukraine war that talks about negotiating and dip- diplomatic solutions. You know, all fine and they need to be on the table and that needs to be on the agenda. But neither side is ready to do that yet. And uh, that makes things very difficult for ASEAN because their mode of sort of consensus-based accommodative diplomacy is, requires that sort of negotiation and it's simply not getting it. And the junta is giving ASEAN a runaround. And we're just not there yet, as you described. Thank you for that. And that is indeed the kind of thing we discuss about Ukraine, but not in this podcast. Ali, so the politics are very stuck, as we've been discussing. What is that going to mean? Yeah, I think, I don't, I, sadly, I don't know what that's going to mean. I think as Sebastian says it's they're at loggerheads. There, there is a stalemate that I see no end to. The, the people involved with the revolution, they feel that they have had their entire futures taken away. They've had their lives snatched from them. They are so angry. They are so distraught. They, they, they don't feel that these people... And there's so many things about the decisions that the military leadership made like the decision to have the coup in the first place defies logic. They already had a huge amount of control. The resistance leaders don't feel that these are people that it's even worth negotiating with. And it's true. And online is famously stubborn. There's also a cultural aspect of not wanting to lose face, not wanting to backtrack, not wanting to step down. So even entering negotiations with people would be seen by many, or certainly he would see himself as as giving up or losing face in some way. So I do think it's really problematic and it is an ugly stalemate. I think the revolution has some aspects that potentially could bring potential success. It's different from other revolutions we've seen in Myanmar before. There is certainly a lot of hope amongst the people you speak to, the revolutionaries, and huge numbers of people. You ask what's now, obviously, this. What's next? And a lot of people still 
suffering in Myanmar. There's a huge amount of fear amongst society. There's distrust everywhere. There's also a lot of people in the border areas, like living in the jungle, trying to start a new life, trying to push forward the revolution. There's a lot of people living in exile. So many worlds turned upside down and there is some support coming from the Thai side in terms of people outside the country. So, it, As you said, it's just an incredibly difficult picture to, to work out what is going to happen. Rashmin, I just wanted right at the end to bring in a completely different point on this same subject. And you've been doing a lot of work in your team on the social media companies. This was a coup that took place on Facebook. How have they been covering this conflict and the crisis that is developing? I mentioned that there are a couple of cases that we're beginning to see. We haven't got all the details of them. It's unclear how far they're going to progress against Meta for their role in fanning the flames of racial hatred, essentially. It's definitely one to watch. There's there's a separate question of free speech issues and freedom of the press. Which the social media companies are tangling with on many sides at the moment. Exactly. Suppose that... In terms of the bigger picture issue as well that we're talking about, moving away slightly from your question, but in terms of the international response, I mean, this is the year of the, it's the 75th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And we've seen so much regression in human rights globally over the last few years. It's a pretty bleak picture, but actually by keeping the world's attention on crises like Myanmar and not just focusing on Ukraine, as Sebastian said earlier, it's really important. And the questions that were raised in terms of Meta's role, this is all part of that, that human rights dialogue and the questions that are raised there. Thank you for that. And that is definitely an issue that we'll be coming back to the social media companies in a different podcast. But for the moment, that's all we have time to discuss. So a big thank you to my guests down the line. That was Sebastian Strangio from The Diplomat, Ali Fowl from Al Jazeera and the BBC, and my colleagues from Chatham House, Ben and Rashmin. And you can find their writing and research here at Chatham House. Do please follow all of our speakers on Twitter, especially Rashmin, as she's following all the social media companies at the moment. A reminder, you can find all of our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and all major podcast providers, as well as through our social media channels. So do follow, subscribe. Please do leave us a review. I ask you every week. It really does help us. And turn to our website, chathamhouse.org, if you want to find out more of our events or become a member, we'd love to have you. You can find there the continuing work of our Asia-Pacific and international law programs. And this week, we hosted Gideon Rackman and Kim Darrick discussing the state of US foreign policy. And you can find the event and clips on YouTube and across our social media. But that is all for now. Have a good weekend. 